If you have your Bible, come with me again to <coughs> James's letter, the second chapter, beginning in verse 14, or today's text is printed. It's our second week with this on page 9 in your bulletin. Here again, this remarkable passage. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O oh, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray now, Lord, that you will just really move in us as we need it through this text. In Jesus' good name, amen. So last time we began to talk about James's main idea here, which is that when you know God, you guys know the difference between knowing God and knowing about him, right? When you know God, you have a relationship with him and you are following his son, Jesus. James tells us your daily life is, it will, as surely as growth follows life, your daily life will be full of good works if you, if you truly know and, and trust in God. Your, your life will begin to be filled with mercy, with giving mercy and forgiving mercy. And James is saying to us here that that's not necessarily true if you're just religious. You know, you can say you have faith. You can have, you can end up having what I called last week cadaver faith or zombie faith. You have religious form in your life. You know, you come to church, you do your, you know, Christian thing, but somehow your life priorities, the stuff that actually drives your everyday living, just does not translate into loving people like Jesus loves people. And James says, if you're a person who has all of the religious talk and you do, not do, you do not do the works of Jesus, you do not love people the way Jesus loves people, then that is not a faith that will justify you before men, and it is not a faith that will stand in God's final judgment. Very serious stuff. Now, it's 2021, and I must say, I think I would be remiss... If I came to this text that tells us that faith without works is dead, and I never asked the question, if you and I are responsible as those who are doing good works, are we responsible for what is called social justice? Social justice. That is a major buzzword right now. All over social media, all over all kinds of, you know, it's just social justice, it, it's a huge topic very poorly defined sometimes. What do I mean by social justice? Are we responsible as Christians for social justice? By that I mean, are we responsible as Christians to stand against societal arrangements? So not your individual life and my individual life so much for a moment. Are we required by Jesus to stand against societal arrangements that promote 
and in some cases perpetuate oppression, poverty, destitution, degradation, these kinds of things? Are we responsible for social justice in these, to stand against these societal arrangements? Because, you know, you've got this opening illustration. So what if this sister who comes and knocks on the door of your house, it's not just that she doesn't have food and clothing. You find out she doesn't, as the text says, she doesn't, she's poorly clothed, she lacks daily food. But what if this sister actually, there's more to the story. She is in need of food and clothing because she is a single mom who lives in a government-subsidized housing project where the rent is being steadily raised by the landlord because in cahoots with the town authorities, what this landlord wants to do is eventually drive all the tenants out, demolish this place, and build a gigantic shopping complex that's going to bring in all kinds of money for the landlord and will really benefit the town. And you find out that's the actual backstory here. Is it enough to say to this lady, here's some cans of soup and a sweater? Is that enough? Is Jesus like, good, you know, you didn't just say be warmed and filled, you gave her some soup and a sweater, you're good, you've done your Christian duty. Is that enough? Can we stop there? It's Father's Day, you know, does this woman actually need something more than just a few goods? She maybe needs a kind of father-like figure, because I can tell you, if this is my daughter, I wouldn't be just giving her soup and a sweater. Well, I've got about 25 minutes, and this is a highly contentious topic, probably most likely in my entire pastoral career to get some rotten tomatoes thrown at me today, which is, I suppose, as it is. I just really want, in these few minutes, to give you some introductory notes toward what I hope will be a profitable discussion. I want to start with the brother or sister language there in verse 19. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, doesn't have enough food, because that brother or sister language is obviously family language, and as family comes to mind, it reminds us of the very first social context in which you and I encounter what I'm going to call the problem of the common good. The problem of the common good. How many of you in this room have heard the term the common good? I'll bet in the last year you have. It's been brought up lots of times in connection with vaccines. The common good. I mean, obviously, on the surface of it, it's pretty obvious. We're talking about our good versus my good. But here's the problem with the word, the the, the term, the common good. No sooner do most of you hear that, and believe me, well, I'm going to leave that for now. No sooner do most of you hear that than you're going to immediately start trying to plot that term on the modern political spectrum. You immediately hear the term common good. I know, I know this because I've been talking to you all for the last year, and boy, have I learned some things about you guys. You immediately start plotting terms like that on the modern political spectrum, this miserable spectrum we now have in the North American context at least. And you guys know that at one end of this political spectrum, there are people for whom the term common good is code word for theft. Common good is what you hear when people want to take your wallet. Common good is a cloak for people who want to intervene in your life and take away your rights and your liberties and your stuff. You, on this end of the political spectrum, people are going to say, you want to talk about the real common good? Leave me alone and just let things play out in our society. The main idea at this far end of the political spectrum is non-interference. Thank you very much. And what you'll hear at this end of the political spectrum is that any notion of the common good being mandatory, you know, you can talk about the common good and we should all, you know, be loving and neighborly and all that, fine. But the minute you say the common good is a kind of mandate, you're a Marxist. That's what you hear at this end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, this pathetic political spectrum we now have, is a very different mindset. And on this end of the spectrum, people are looking out and they see whole swaths of our society today as enemies of the common good. There are just like 
49% of our population are actually enemies of the common good. They are obstructive, at least, to the common good. And this, this, at this end of the political spectrum, what people want is they want the government, state with a capital S, they want the government to go out there and deal with these people. Take their money. Force us all to contribute to social programs. Fix the problem. Do something for the common good. Force everyone to get vaccinated. Just make it happen. How hard can it be? That's what the kind of rhetoric you'll hear at this end of the spectrum. Now, I don't know. I don't know. After the last year, I would have said a year ago, no problem. Now I'm not so sure. I don't know if it's possible, even for us in this room, to disentangle our imaginations from this political spectrum enough to really step back and think Christianly about the common good. What is the common good? What is a common good? Because it might be more than one. So let me ask this question to get us rolling on this. What, which of these following scenarios involves a common good? Scenario one, I invite you to my house to share a pizza. Scenario two, we go together one evening to Robert Moses Beach and watch a sunset together. Scenario three, our kids from Trinity enter the volleyball tournament next Saturday night and they, they win. They win well. Which of those is a common good? The pizza, the sunset, or the volleyball tournament? Let me suggest that the sharing the pizza is actually not a common good. That is a distribution of private goods. You have your pizza, I have mine. We may be drawing from the same box of pizza, but it's actually a distri distribution of private goods. You've now got your pizza, and I have mine. And it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see that in that scenario, which is actually not a common good, you've got a situation where things could get really competitive because all of a sudden you've got three slices of pizza, and I've got two, and we've got a problem. That's not a common good. That's a collection of private goods in the same box. This sunset is also not a common good. Because just like you, you know, it's, it's a joint experience of a private good. This is what I mean by that. We are together on the beach watching the sunset. Now, it's different. You can't divide the sunset the way you can divide the pizza. It's just one good. But it actually, your enjoyment of that sunset is a private good because just like you could eat your pizza alone, see, there's nothing that really changes about the pizza by eating it alone or with other people. It's just a private good. And the same thing with the sunset. You can enjoy it with me, but the reality is the sunset's still the sunset whether I'm on the beach with you or not. It's a private good. We just happen to be sharing that private good jointly. It's not a common good. You could watch the sunset alone. Now, the volleyball tournament's very different because winning that volleyball tournament is a good that each player on that team can experience only through their shared life. You can only experience that win through your shared life. That's a true common good. And it reflects something that I believe is now largely missing from our political imagination in North America, and that is situations where we live together what none of us could live alone. Where the fact that we are sharing life means we are now living in a way that we could not live alone. You could enjoy the sunset on your own, you could have a pizza on your own, but you cannot win a volleyball tournament alone. That only comes through the shared life. A common good is where you and I flourish together, flourish by being in the same life in a way that we could not flourish by ourselves. Each player on that volleyball team is going to win that tournament only insofar as we win the tournament. Apart from the common good, there is no individual good. And the more we win, the more we roll through the tournament, winning game after game, the more each of us individually wins. And so in a crazy way, in that scenario, what you realize is every single member of that team is actually living and sharing the best performance of each player. 
that star over there who can bump set spike by herself, I'm glad she's on my team because you know what? We win together. We stand or fall together. That's the common good. Our lives are joined now. We have been forced out of the toxic, keep your options open, individualism that thinks of the common good as the fact that we all shop at the same store, which is basically how North Americans think about the common good. We all shop at the same store. A healthy family is a common good. Today's Father's Day. I flourish... Our family flourishes insofar as the family flourishes. My relationship to my child, my father-child relationship with Katie Andrew Kent and Brian, I flourish as a father only insofar as my kids are flourishing and our relationship is flourishing. I can never say, you know what, today I think I'm actually just going to go be a father by myself. That is impossible because the very nature of flourishing as a father is the common good. That's what a family actually is. The common good is not standing around a pile of resources and fighting over the pile of resources. That's not how families work. My, my house is not a pile of resources, and we all just kind of get up in the morning and fight over that pile of resources, although I do know families that function like that. In a healthy family, the common good means we are sharing life in such a way that the more my wife and children are blessed, the more blessed I am. That's a common good. And it, those individual common goods that we find throughout the world, individual families and so on, particular families, particular teams, particular common goods, they are just pale shadows of a far greater reality, which I'm going to call the common good. The, not a common good, but the common good. Because let me ask you guys a question. And I know it's a little warm in here, so stay awake. As creatures, as a creature that God made, what's your ultimate good? I mean, some of you have goods in mind. You think, you know, it'd be good to I, whatever, you can imagine. You've got, you got a checklist, a bucket list of goods, I'm sure. What is your ultimate good? What is, ask it differently, what's the good in relation to which you experience perfect flourishing? And this is where some smarty pants says, God, you know. And it's true. God is your ultimate good. He is that good in relation to which you perfectly flourish, but immediately you can see that God is not just my ultimate good. God is the ultimate common good. See, the reason why I believe in the common good is because I believe in God, and he is the common good. What do I mean by that? I mean that I do not experience my highest blessedness, my highest flourishing, merely in being fully and rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Now, that is awesome. I mean, that is, there is, that is an astonishing good, that I, a mere creature of dust and a sinner at that, through the work of Jesus Christ, as he has taken my sins and his death on the cross and he has given me his righteousness and I stand before God now as his child, I can be now and for all eternity more and more fully and perfectly related to that God who is goodness himself, who is the very source of life and blessedness. But my highest blessedness is not just that, but it is relating to that God as a part of all things being fully and right, rightly related to him. That's the highest blessedness. Not you sitting on a cloud and you and God have got a thing going for eternity, but you being fully and rightly related to that God with, along with all things that he has made being fully and rightly related to him so that the more all things in the whole of creation are full of God's life and love, the more full I am. The more you have of God, the more you receive what God intended for you, the more you become what God intended for you, the more 
I have of you and the more I have of God. Do you realize that? Like, that's what, the, that's what we call the communion of saints actually is. The, the more you're, you're, like, connected to God and, and you're being filled by God, what that means is you're more alive and our relationship is more alive because I have more of you because God's bringing out more of you and he's giving me more of himself through you. This is just everyone's blessed. And I'm sure some of you have already run ahead and you've realized that's what it means when the Apostle Paul talks about the body of Christ, that when one member suffers, we're all suffering. That's the common good. When one member is blessed, we are all rejoicing because the livelier your connection to Jesus, the head of the body, the more alive we all are. That's what the body of Christ means. You, this drives me nuts as a pastor. Christians who think they don't need the church. Like you just have this you and the head thing and you can just forget about the rest of the body. That is absolutely false. But Paul goes even crazier. He doesn't just say that in the body of Christ, God is restoring the, the common good. He says in Ephesians 1.10 that God has a plan to put all things back together through Christ. There will not be a creature in the cosmos left out of this. In the end, all things will be fully and rightly related to God. And that will be the highest blessedness. That is the common good. That is God's politic. That is God's kingdom. That is God's economy. In God's kingdom economy, creaturely relationships, as God designed them and as he is restoring them through Jesus, they are fundamentally harmonious, not competitive. And that is foundational to the Christian sociopolitical vision. What we are doing every day in our lives is we are working to make the particular local common goods that we are working on, to make those local particular common goods a kind of mirror, a kind of image of the common good, a little picture of the whole thing that God is doing through Jesus. We actually believe the Bible means it when it says, love thy neighbor, how? As thyself, because you are loving yourself by loving your neighbor. In the flourishing of my neighbor, in the flourishing of my city, I flourish. And the daily shape of that biblical vision is what the Bible calls good works. So having talked about the problem of the common good, now let's, in the back half of this, turn to the common good and good works, because that's the shape of it. And we're back in the text here. So if, if, if that's God's reality, that's the politic of God, however individual societies may deny that, may defy that, that is reality, that's the, that's the actual cosmic thing, then there are at least two implications for the Christian for Christian social life. One of them is represented by Abraham. Here I'll call this the Abraham principle, and this is implication number one of what we've just been talking about. My treasures are at God's disposal. My treasures are at God's disposal. If that's the thing, if that's the kingdom, that's the big story, then number one implication is my treasures are at God's disposal as part of that. That's the Abraham principle, because think about Abraham. Abraham is the father of faith, and faith that is alive to God's mission in the world through Jesus. Now, Abraham lived before Jesus, but he figured out that it was through his seed that God was going to bring the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So he's got, he's got a picture of God's plan, and he's fully awake to that, and he's fully alive to that, and he's all in. And when your faith is alive to what God is doing in the world through Jesus, then you are going to hold everything you have in subordination to that mission. You guys still awake? Everything you have, you are going to hold it in subordination to that mission because that's the big thing, and I'm part of that, and everything I've got, every treasure I have, really, it needs to be connected to that. Abraham's great act of faith was to act on the simple fact that what God had given him, God still owned. 
that that son of promise that God had given to him was still the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. And even that, that, that son that God gave to him, he was able to put it entirely at God's disposal because he understood that God didn't give up his lordship when he gave me possession. Now, it's important to emphasize this does not annul private possessions. You know, the eighth commandment against stealing, the tenth commandment against coveting your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his donkey, his etc., wouldn't make much sense if we weren't allowed to have private possessions. The law of God commands that when you have private possessions, I need to respect that and honor that and steal not and even covet not. But we need to be very clear in the 21st century that what the Bible does is it recasts that possession as a stewardship. You do not own your house. You do not own your car. You do not own your clothing. You do not own your 401k. You do not own anything. You possess these things as a steward of the God who made the heavens and the earth. That is the biblical sociopolitical vision. My treasures must be at God's disposal because they're not mine. I'm not being somehow generous to tithe. I'm not being generous to put my things at God's disposal. I'm simply acknowledging what is reality, which is it's all his anyway. My time, etc. My body. You know, as, a, as a, just a, a quick aside, in modern times, you know, we don't have God anymore, right? We've thrown him out, we think. And without God to claim ownership of our lives for the common good, so God says, your stuff is mine for the common good. We don't have that anymore, so guess who steps in to fill God's role? The state. And many states in the 20th and 21st centuries have acted as a parody of God, a parody of divine ownership. We'll take your stuff for the common good. Second principle, second, second implication, my treasure's at God's disposal, that's Abraham. But Rahab tells us something else, another implication, and that is, I care for those God cares for regardless of cultural norms and expectations. I'm going to, because of because of the kingdom of God, I'm, I'm going to care for those God cares for, regardless of cultural norms and expectations, because that's what Rahab did. You remember what Rahab did? You remember the story? So after 40 years of wandering the wilderness, Israel gets to the land of Canaan. They send spies in. They get into the city of Jericho. They end up in the prostitute's house. Her name is Rahab. She says, I know you're God's people. I know you're going to take this city. When the soldiers come knocking on the door, she hides them, and then she sends them out another way out of the city to go on their spy mission. What's interesting about that story, she welcomed them, James says, there in verse 25, she welcomed them, received them, sent them out another way. Why? Because she, listen, she saw those spies as God saw them, not as her society saw them. Do you follow? She saw the spies the way God saw them, not the way her society saw them. And because she saw these spies as God saw them, they're God's people. There was more than just the act of mercy on her part to, you know, receive them, hide them, send them out in safety. That act of mercy, and here I'm really going to lean on something, that act of mercy, that gift of charity, if you like, was just the first step toward a common life she wanted to share with them. Because you remember the whole point of this is she says, when you come back and you take the city of Jericho, I'm going to hang this golden cord in my window, my, this, this scarlet cord in my window, and I, I want to be, I want to come, you're, you're going to be my people. Your God is my God. So this act of mercy was just the first step toward a true, common life with them, a common good. And that fits James's larger point in this chapter and in the book as a whole, which is he is trying to move his readers not just to give donations to the poor, 
but to view the poor as brothers and sisters, as those with whom you share a common life that could even be described in family terms. They belong to you, you belong to them. In the language of the Old Testament, beloved, these are your neighbors. They're your neighbors. And it brings us back to social justice. Must we do more than just throw occasional charity at those our society does not value, like that single mom? Can I say something to you? And I must say there's a lot of grief for me in this that I'm about to say, particularly where we live here in Long Island. Is it enough just to throw occasional charity at people our society doesn't value? Do you know what removes the conditions for poverty? Poverty doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know what removes the conditions for oppression? Because oppression doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know how you remove the conditions, the, the, the greenhouse, if you like, in which those horrible things can grow, poverty and oppression and exploitation? You know what really removes those conditions in which that's horrible, those weeds can grow? It's a shared life. It's communities in which they become we. Do you know why the emancipation of slaves in the 19th century failed for so long and there are still lingering ongoing ways, many ways in which it still has not really succeeded in its objective? Because you cannot simply emancipate slaves if they're still not your people. Jim Crow is not a particularly fantastic advance on the slavery problem. They are still they. They are still over there. They are not we. And so for decades you had, and you still have it today, many ways in which there are these radical population separations. They're not we. And I must say this brings me to a certain, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little intense today. You all know that sometimes happens, just, you know. This brings me to a certain pessimism I honestly have about social justice in our time. And I am pessimistic about it. Here's why I'm pessimistic about it. And I'm not talking about you guys necessarily, although if there's something here for you to hear, man, hear it, please. People talk about systemic injustice, and, you know, you hear people and they say there's no such thing, you know, all injustice is sort of individual. You know what? If there is a systemic issue that stands in the way of social justice in our society, and it is systemic, it is at, it's, it's, it's so in the water, you don't even know it's water. If there is a systemic thing that stands in the way of social justice in our society, it is the phenomenally widespread collapse of shared life of any kind. The phenomenally widespread, you don't even see it, it's so normal now, you, the phenomenally widespread collapse of any actual shared life. I didn't say we don't shop at the same grocery stores and live in the same housing developments, but a shared life. Our lives are now, beloved, structurally individualistic. Our American dream is interdependence with nobody. I've got my own money, I've got my own castle, I've got my own future, I've got my own education. It's, it's not a friendship model of social life at all. The American dream is you don't actually need anybody. You don't stand or fall with anybody. If the whole thing goes to pieces, you're still standing in your own little life. That is the dream. That is the vision. Baked into our society, you're all soaking in it. 
And in a society like that, you know, it's a little wonder that our political spectrum is torn between those who just want a separate room with as much of the pizza as they can possibly have on one end, and then the other people at the other end who want us all in separate rooms with an exactly equal share of the pizza. And there's our political system. Gets right down into our living places. You all think you live in neighborhoods. You don't. You live in housing developments. The very structure of Long Island housing developments, they are not neighborhoods. It enculturates us to prioritize personal lifestyle over shared life. You know what a neighborhood is? Neighborhood is where if somebody moves out, there are major problems in the ecosystem. You know the problem in Long Island is there are no ecosystems. You can move in and out of your neighborhood and no one never know the difference. The next one moves in. That is not an ecosystem. It's not a neighborhood. It's a housing development. You share a general location. It is not a shared life. And it's right down to our housing. The suburban ideal is keep them out. Happy to send you some awful documentaries about how racist that was mid-century, if you want to just talk about the racist angle, but the reality is suburbia, suburbia on this island, much of it was built with the idea of keep them out, whoever they are. It's not all racist. It could be other things. Keep them out. Especially the undesirables. Charles Marone, whose book Strong Towns, man, I encourage you to read it. Strong Towns, he says, listen to this, this is an indictment. He says, the only common cultural practice the only common cultural practice consistently reinforced by the structure of the places we have built today is consumption. That is the only common cultural practice that our places reinforce is we consume together. We've all got Best Buy. Thank God. That is not a shared life. And you add to this virtual culture, which enables us and enculturates us all to be completely individualistic wherever we physically are. The glorious thing about my phone is I can get away from any of you in a moment's notice. Just give me my phone. And I am independent once again. This is now normal, and let's be honest, beloved, we like it. We like it. We are addicted to the very individualism that is killing us as a society. So here's my conclusion. Cheery stuff, this, I know. It's serious. It's a mess. Two suggestions for following Jesus toward better things. If you're interested. If you're interested, because individualism is comfortable. I had to ask myself, Lord, am I ready to step into this stuff? Here's a couple suggestions. We could talk more. I hope we will. Number one, go find some disadvantaged people and invite them to your table. Just start with that. Go find some disadvantaged people. I'm not talking down at them and saying that there are people in this world who are disadvantaged. Go find some of them. You know them, I'm sure. Invite them to your table. Just have them into your home. Fathers, it's Father's Day. Take the lead in this. Just open your home, open your table, have them come sit down and eat and drink with you because, you know, hospitality is by definition sharing life. What was once mine is now ours. And can I just say, without a shared life, rearranging resources will not produce justice or peace. There is this moronic notion in our political life, you've just rearranged resources more somehow that'll produce justice and peace. No, it won't without a shared life. No, it won't without actual relationships. No, it won't without communities. It has been tried. It has failed. But don't talk about people who think that way if your home and your table are not open. Second thing, learn to make things and do things and then go show others how to make and do those things. It strikes me that the Apostle Paul, we're told this, why? He was a tent maker. 
You know, it's weird, tent making opens opportunities because the more you make and do things, the more you can make and do those things with other people who want to make and do those things and learn from you how to make and do those things and suddenly you have community going on. Why do I say that? Because there is a problem in our society that I think is actually becoming so acute, it makes me really nervous if we ever had a real, like, natural crisis on the island. We are becoming a society of people who, by historical standards, are disabled. We are, historically speaking, disabled. What do I mean? There, we are raising a generation of people who lack the knowledge and the skills to move beyond a crippling dependency on commodities experts and agencies. We are raising a generation that could not live without the commodities produced by corporate America, the experts, so-called, and the agencies of our time, and that is how you create a society of poverty and destitution from which there's no escape because there's no knowledge and skill. So learn to make and do things and go teach people how to learn how to make and do things. That is part of how we contribute to social justice. That's following Jesus. That's being like the Apostle Paul. I got to stop. So the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament is a beautiful social program. I love the Old Testament. It is a social justice program built on the foundation of God's own covenantal love for his people, including the poor and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow. And, you know, modern Jews, modern Jews retain some of the social instincts from all of that that we could learn from. Charles Marone tells an interesting story about a guy he visited in Brooklyn named Moshe, who was a Hasidic Jew. I stopped with Moshe at his apartment. He has a wife and three children, and together they live in a place smaller than my college apartment. Okay? Wife, three kids, they get, live in a place smaller than my college apartment. They are always intimately surrounded by other Hasidic Jews. In their living room, which doubles as a bedroom overnight, there were two extra children in folding playpens. Moshe, asked, Moshe told me that his rabbi asked if he and his wife would take in these children for a while so a neighboring couple could work on their struggling marriage. I looked around the extremely cramped apartment and asked how long this was going to be. Moshe shrugged, as long as they need, I guess. My house, says Marone, has vastly more space than Moshe's, yet I can't imagine opening it up like that. Even more telling, I can't imagine being asked to do so. Did you hear that? He can't imagine anyone asking for that. I don't even know where such a request would happen. It would require a frequency of contact, a level of, intimacy, a level of intimacy with people in my community that I just don't have. Only Jesus, I think, might push it even more strongly. When he builds a home and sets a feast, he says, don't wait to be asked. Have a look out there at the poor, the blind, the crippled the lepers, go compel them to come in. That's social justice. That's following Jesus. Amen. Make us salt and light, our Lord, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.